When a man is in prison for 20 years, how do you document the toll it takes on his family? An answer to that question lies in the new film called Time. I speak with the director, Garrett Bradley. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. Garrett Bradley is having a moment. Her film Time is being released this month by Amazon. In November, the Museum of Modern Art will exhibit her multi-channel video installation called America. She was recently profiled in the New York Times and has been interviewed in several other places. You can find links in our show notes. She grew up in New York City. Both her parents are painters. They divorced soon after they were married, and Garrett grew up closer to her mother. In high school, she interviewed them both for a personal documentary that set her on a path of filmmaking. After going to film school in Los Angeles, Garrett settled in New Orleans and directed an independent fiction feature called Below Dreams, made with young, non-professional actors. One of those actors wound up going to prison, so Garrett made a documentary about his girlfriend left behind. It's a poetic, black-and-white short called Alone, available to watch on New York Times Opdocs. One film led to another. During the making of Alone, Garrett met Fox Rich, an advocate in New Orleans for people with incarcerated family members. Fox is a memorable voice in Alone. This system breaks you apart. It is designed just like slavery to tear you apart. And instead of using the whip, they use mother time. They use hardships. They may not hang you from the tree, but the experience itself is just like when they used to hang people but barely hang them and leave their feet just tiptoeing around in the mud so that they're constantly on their tiptoes fighting for their life. That is a daily experience when you are an incarcerated family. You are hanging on by a rope, tiptoeing in the mud, just trying to get enough solid dirt under your feet to still live. Garrett came to learn that Fox Rich had a deep lived experience with this system. In 1997, Fox and her husband, Rob, were in desperate straits. They tried to commit an armed robbery of a credit union. Rob went inside with his nephew, while Fox was meant to be the getaway driver. It was their first offense, and no one was physically hurt, but the sentencing was harsh. Sixty years in prison for Rob. Fox also did time, but got out after three years. Afterwards, she became a successful entrepreneur, raised their six boys, and dedicated herself to getting Rob released against all odds. In time, she describes the toll it takes waiting year after year. At the beginning of every year, every New Year's Eve for the past 20 years, we have always started the new year knowing that this was going to be the year that my husband was coming home. And if you haven't done something in the courts by Thanksgiving, then you know that you're about to end the year and you're still going to be incarcerated. The hope that you've given yourself all year long or the 
truth be told, a lie you've given yourself all year long. You have to accept that maybe this just wasn't the year. But next year is the year. When Garrett started filming with Fox, she imagined she was making another short that would be a companion to Alone. But near the end of filming, Garrett got a surprise. Fox gave her a bag of high 8 videotapes that she'd been recording for nearly 20 years while Rob was in prison. That footage caused the project to expand to its feature length. I got to see Time in January and picked it as one of my favorites on this podcast for our Sundance preview in episode 112. Time went on to win the Sundance Documentary Directing Prize. Last week, I connected with Garrett in Los Angeles by Zoom. I started by asking what she learned from her parents about being an artist. First, I don't have anything to compare it to, obviously. But I think both my parents being artists, um, you know, I took a lot of things away from, from that. I think first and foremost, it was really about understanding the role of community in your life. You know, I mean, even as painters, painting is a, is a, is a, is a practice to a certain extent of solitude. Um, but it is also very much dependent on being able to have an exchange, you know, um, with people, uh, to, in terms of, you know, thinking and expanding your ideas and expanding your, your, uh, the way in which you work, um, context. Right. And I don't think that that's been any different for me as a filmmaker, you know, working in a different field. So much of what I do is dependent and inspired by the community that I am immediately a part of, um, I think the other part of it, maybe on a more kind of personal level, is is having the confidence to be curious. I think that I think many of us, um, no matter what you do in the world, you are you want to be understood, you know, and and you see things and you observe things and the things that you see make you feel a certain kind of way, and the way that you feel then informs how you act and what you do. And I think that one of the great sort of journeys in, in human existence is trying to find a way to feel complete and being complete is, is connected to that very idea. How do you articulate those things and achieve those things? How do you communicate? How do you find a way to, to be understood in the world? Um, and so much of that comes from confidence. So I think that that is um, so much of what I, I got from, from my parents. As you were thinking about developing your own means of uh, self-expression, uh, you know, did you think about following in your mom's footsteps and being an, uh, a painter, or did you feel like very deliberate that you wanted to scope something else out? I think painting is the hardest thing anyone can do. I don't think there's anything harder than it, than it because you can't fake it. You know, I mean, you can fake a lot of things. You can certainly fake making movies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and even photography and even music. Um, so I, I mean, I no, I, I never in my life even thought about being a painter, you know, um, my dad, my dad is also a painter and I, I, I truly just, I truly think it is, uh, you either have it or you don't. And so what were the things that set you off on the path to make films? And I guess I'm curious, especially, you know, since, you know, your, your work is, uh, gone between fiction and nonfiction documentary being my specialty. I'm curious, what are the things that, you know, drew you into, uh, trying to tackle nonfiction subjects? Well, 
I had always been interested in movie making and filmmaking. And when I was in high school, I was fortunate enough to have a high eight camcorder. And I spent the last three years at a Quaker uh, high school that happened to have editing equipment. And so I was able to kind of start to play around with that type of language. And I think it was certainly, it was the defining point in my life of feeling like I had found that very thing I was mentioning earlier, which was how to articulate myself and how to express myself, how to feel like I had a purpose in the world where I could give something to the world, you know, um, in a way that, that, that felt right to me. Um, and I, I think to be honest with you that because someone had told me that I was good at it and I felt validated in the process of it at that age, it's why I kept doing it. Um, <laughs> I really think, you know, I know that sounds... Well, that's like, very me- That's a meaningful push. <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, getting into documentary filmmaking, um, I mean, I hadn't thought so much about genre, to be, to be honest with you. I, my first um, paid commissioned opportunity was with Field of Vision, um, and I made two short documentaries with them. Um, and so I think documentary filmmaking is where I got my first opportunities to, um, to make work. You know, my, my, my first film, my first feature length film below dreams, uh, which premiered in 2014. I mean, that was, that was all money that was raised through, you know, being in graduate school, through friends, through family, through Kickstarter. You know, I didn't, I didn't have a company behind me. No one cared what I was doing. No one cared if it was finished or anything. So, I think um, documentary was the first time I was I was given support to do something. Um, you grew up in New York, if I understand your CV right. You uh, went to school in Massachusetts and California, and then you wound up in New Orleans, um, at where uh, a lot of your films are set. Um, can you talk about what drew you to New Orleans? Yeah, you know, I... Uh, um, I started when I was in graduate school in California. Um, I had, during my summer break, started taking Greyhound buses between New York and New Orleans. And I was meeting a lot of people my age during that time period. Um, And I had a tape recorder and I had a still camera. And I didn't really have any purpose for why I wanted to engage people. Um, Now, let me just stop because I, you know, New Orleans recent history is, you know, is very specific uh, point in time when Hurricane Katrina uh, hit the city in 2005 and then and then went through a period of recovery. So the time when you were going there, where, where did that fit into the history of the city? So this was about four, between four and five years after Katrina um, is when I started going to New Orleans. And, um, you know, I was in college when Katrina happened. It was certainly in my consciousness, uh, but I didn't at the time have any family there or any kind of immediate connection with the city. So, you know, my draw to it actually was coming from, from a kind of more abstract place. I really didn't have any specific intention for why, why I was being drawn to the city. I also didn't have any uh, intention to make a project there in any kind of way. It happened to be that I was taking these 37 hour bus rides between New York and meeting all these amazing people who were my age and asking them questions that I think I was asking myself about what I wanted to do in the world, how I planned on doing it, what what I was up against in the process of that. And it wasn't until the New York Times Magazine published uh, a feature 
that was entitled, what is it about these 20 somethings? And it was all these really beautiful, beautiful spread of, of great looking people from Brooklyn. And, and the thesis being that, you know, my generation is plagued with being overeducated and underemployed. And that really wasn't the majority experience that I was encountering um, in my travels. And so that really was the inception of making my first feature was to think about how image making provides a really critical counter to a mainstream narrative that then in the future becomes the, def the definition of us, you know? So how do we diversify that and include a, a realistic understanding of what at any given time period looks and feels like to people? Um, and so I stayed in New Orleans after making that film because I, I built an incredible community there. And I think a lot of what I'm interested in my work has been looking at the beginnings of our country and thinking about the genesis and thinking about the past of our country, uh, you know, um, as a way of understanding the present moment. And being in the South um, has been a really um, an important way of thinking through those ideas in a way that I think New York and Los Angeles and some of these larger cities, they're really focused on the future, right? And so the past and its history oftentimes are harder to see. I, feel, I only know New Orleans as a tourist and love it. Um, but I have always felt very aware about that city. Maybe it's true of any city, but accentuated a little bit in, in New Orleans of an insider outsider uh, uh, status. Uh, and you maybe it's a city that can welcome you in as an insider, but needs you to uh, you know prove yourself uh, a, a little bit. Um, and uh, I wonder how you've you know, experience that in, in, in New Orleans, especially since so much of your work is about New Orleans. Yeah. You know, I think, I think New Orleans is sort of the exception to the rule because, um, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I, I think that a lot of that has to do with, you know, when you, when you come to that city, you, you can't be coming from a place of, of extraction, you know, um, I think you have to be contributing or giving to the space. And it's not actually just New Orleans. It's any place that you go to. I think you need to be giving something uh, and making making work, whether it's a film, whether it's no matter what it is. Um, it can't just be coming, um, I think, purely from your own desire. I think that I think that the desire needs to inherently be connected to what you plan on offering. What it is, what is it contributing, and what is it giving on some level? Um, and it's funny because someone sent me, someone sent me an email recently, not related to New Orleans, but related to um, a place in California, where they said, "Thank you so much for not mentioning this specific city in California and that you were staying here." Sort of in this, on, because it was, it was an article on a really public platform, and I thought to myself, you know, there isn't an inch of American land that hasn't been stolen. And so the idea of territorialism around insider and outsider, I think, becomes a really complex conversation. But in the context of New Orleans, it really is a unique space um, where there is, I think, a very valid amount of ownership. And that you, when you come there, um, you, have to, you have to honor that in a way that I think is unlike any other place in the country. As I understand it, you met Fox Rich, who's at the center of uh, the film Time, when you were making this short film uh, alone uh, that also has themes of incarceration. Um, and uh, can you talk more about how you got to know Fox Rich and how that you know moved from an initial meeting to thinking about making a film about her? Yeah, I mean, I've never made a project with the intention... Like, I've never gone out into the world and said, I need... 
I need to come up with an idea or I need to find a subject. I don't, I don't use words like subject. I don't believe in, in phrases like access. I think I've been incredibly lucky. And again, I think it goes back to the importance of being a part of a community in a real way and, and having uh, people in your life who are not um, just inherently connected to the craft with which you're in. Right. Um, because I, so much of the work has come from just being in the real world, you know, separate from the craft to a certain extent. Um, and so I met Fox, as you said, in the process of making alone. Um, but I, I, I truly, the real point of connection happened in my, in my contacting an, organi an organization called Flick, Friends and Families of Louisiana's Incarcerated Children. And Gina Womack, who's the co-founder and director of that organization, picked up the phone and said, you know, you have to speak to Fox Rich for the purpose of making this other film. And I got to know Fox in the process of making alone. And I think for me, I was in a place where I was really trying to contemplate what would it mean to make a sister film to alone, um, to make two films that you could never disconnect from one another. But the purpose of it being that we can, there are many, many stories that exist within this one topic in the same way that Steve McQueen said, you know, 12 Years a Slave can't stand in as the one narrative for this time period. There are hundreds of thousands of stories that exist that have not been told within this one context. And the same is true right now when we talk about the prison industrial complex, when we talk about 2.3 million people who are incarcerated, there's if not double, triple that number of people who are affected this. This is the majority experience in our country. And so we need to be able to talk about the diversity of experience of how families are navigating the same issue in different ways. Um, and I didn't want alone to stand in as sort of like the monolithic experience of that, that Fox is a very different woman. The Richardson families, they're a very different family. It's a similar issue, but they're maneuvering it in a way that's wholly unique to themselves. Um, and I think that that is important as we think about how to not have this conversation be a monolithic, abstract, singular, singular idea that there is, uh, there are multitudes that exist within it. The film is in black and white, as many of your other films, uh, uh, not all as I understand it, uh, are. Um, what is it that draws you to black and white as a medium? Well, Yoshi Yamamoto talks about how when you cut with clothes and you make clothing, you can see the form so much better in black and white. And... I like to think about filmmaking in a similar way. I also feel that when we think about the history of cinema, which is still so young, it used to be that we had to shoot in black and white and then color became an option. And I think it's exactly that. It's still an option. It doesn't have to be a standard. Um, I think we're still so young in the craft that to have um, expectations around what things are supposed to be, or that we even need to have any deep reason for why we choose what we choose um, is kind of moot. But I will say that I really, in the case of time, you know, we went back and forth myself and Gabe Rhodes, who's the film's editor. We did play with the idea of having it be in color because the archive is in color. Um, but ultimately we, we went back to it, not only because I wanted it to, formally to stay connected to alone, um, but also because it really provided a level of visual linearity and fluidity that was so crucial to sort of the overall themes and understandings of how we were subverting the importance of chronology and of linearity to a certain extent. It allowed us to move um, back and forth with hopefully more ease and grace than I think the color was offering. So I've read that you had 
done a lot of filming with Fox Rich. You were getting ready to edit the film. And then she said, oh, by the way, I've got these tapes, um, which uh, she'd been shooting for many years and become a big part of the of the film. Uh, I, I'm curious, do you know, had she ever looked back on those 15 years or so uh, of tapes or when she was handing them you, was she handing something that she hadn't seen besides the time she'd recorded them? Yeah. So on, on our last day of filming, I remember saying to Fox, okay, I'm going to come back in a few months and I'll show you a cut again, thinking it was going to be a 13 minute short film. And and when she handed me this bag um, of what became a hundred hours of footage, no, she herself said, I haven't seen this since I shot it in the nineties. Um, and I just remember having so much fear when I was holding that bag and putting it into my car and driving home and then putting it into a box and shipping it across the country to get transcoded with no backup. It was, it was terrifying. It was also a testament, I think, to the trust and to the bond that we had developed over the course of, of making the film at that point. Um, How long had you been interacting at that point? Um, well, we'd been shooting, um, we'd been shooting for maybe a year. Okay. So is my guess. Enough time to have established that. that Oh, absolutely. I mean, I thought the film, we were done, you know? Um, well we had to be, there were deadlines and budget constraints and all sorts of things that you have to deal with as a filmmaker. Um, which I think as when you're working in documentaries, you have to focus so much on the present moment, you know? everything is in the present moment. You can't have any expectations about the future. Um, and this really exploded everything. <laughs> um, so I'm curious what it was like for Fox Rich when she saw a cut of, of this work put together. Yeah, I mean, that's always that's always the big moment. Everything kind of hinges on that moment. Um, I'm every filmmaker is different. I, I always show the work to people before it goes out into the world. I think getting their blessing is really important. Um, and it was, it was Robert and Fox. Um, and it was incredibly emotional. I mean, you know, again, Fox hadn't seen that footage since the nineties. Robert himself had, had obviously never seen any of it. Um, and I think it was, you know, the way he kind of describes it, it's like he was there, on, on the on the other side of the phone he was there in spirit certainly um, but those memories are sort of just images you're creating in your mind if you're not actually there and so I think it was an incredibly uh, profound moment um, between him and Fox frankly in terms of um, what was so what what she was doing in the documentation of that and allowing reality to a certain extent to then be merged with memories that he had created um, in his own mind, you know, and I think that goes back to this idea for for me, I think of the, of the, the function of the film as a whole, which is that I think in a variety of ways, it offers a template for different types of resistance, different types of, you know, combating oppression and one self-documentation um, is a huge part of that. There's a lot going on in the world in uh, 2020. Um, you know, we could name a list of, uh, of things. Uh, I wonder how you've been, uh, processing, um, everything that's going on this year. Well, there is, um, there's a lot that's going on in 2020, 
But I really think that it is, it's a year of revelation just as much as it is about disaster. It is just unpeeling everything that has always been there. So I think on some level, I am thankful that we are at a point where we can no longer avoid or equivocate or ignore um, what's always been there. I think that, you know, the movement um, specifically around police brutality and the role that white allyship has played and the role that um, the technology has played in, in attempting to hold uh, people accountable for the actions that exist have been for me, really interesting entry points for how we think about as filmmakers and artists our relationship to the prison industrial complex and how so much of the power around, again, the, the fact that 2.3 million people are incarcerated in, in this country, that the system has, has erased that truth, that it's very hard for us to, I think, um, actually visualize and think about that number of people, you know? And so... There's a lot of power in trying to create optics and visuality around that, you know, that are, that this idea of erasure, this idea of an invisible population in many ways, the only way that we have evidence for what's happening is in the family, is in, is, is, is in working with those that are on the outside. Um, and so I think that's been another thing that's become really clear to me as an artist and a filmmaker in this current moment um, that does feel new, which is that we need to create more examples. We need to combat the prison industrial complex on its own terms, which is with this idea of what is visible and not visible. How do you think these things are affecting your work? I think it's it's presenting new and important questions as somebody who's working in a visual medium. How do you how do you think about, how do you visualize what is invisible? How do you, how do you create proof and evidence of something that has been erased? I think that's a question that, um, that I'm sitting with and will, and will continue to sw sit with for a long time. It seems to me that you're at a, uh, pivotal moment in your career um, where you had been uh, you know, making work at a certain scale and now you've got this really substantial film that's being received um, in a great way. Uh, it has, you know, it's going to get a major distribution push and, um, you know, I, I think about when Ava DuVernay was at Sundance in 2012 with Middle of Nowhere, and she, you know she was someone who was at a kind of similar inflection point in her career. She had made a lot of work, but you know, since then she's had a lot more opportunities opened up to her. And I can imagine that at this point you probably have people coming to you with you know offers that you know wouldn't have been happening a couple of years ago, and and there's something that is exciting about that um and there's something that you know might be exhausting about that to have you know so many different podcasters and journalists uh like me uh trying to extract uh something from you um i wonder how you're experiencing this moment 
I go back and forth with what it means to explain your work, to make your work, and then to explain your work. I think in the context of this project, it's really important to have a conversation and to repeat as many of the same questions as you can, no matter how tired you are, because the questions are a reflection of what people need to know. They're a reflection of where we're at. Um, and if a question is being presented, that means that someone's looking for an answer, you know, that, 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 that there is a need um, for a dialogue. And so I think it would be naive and selfish to not honor that um, and to not be giving to it, even if it's exhausting. You can't even understand what it's going to be like until you're in it. Yeah, certainly. That that is definitely true. Um and I mean someone needs to make a film about like the press junket of like what it is to do <laughs> like five minute interviews about like, you know, seventy-five things like of the same question back to back. I mean, and to not to feel like a robot, but to to not give in to the robotic feeling that you start to get, you know? Um, but I I don't know. I I think it's um, you know, not not every project I would feel comfortable doing this with, but I think in that with this film in particular, um, again, I think that the questions are, are, are entry points for something that's really important. I want to thank Garrett Bradley for speaking with me. You can watch her short film alone as part of New York Times Opdocs, and you can see time on Amazon. You'll find links in our show notes. I want to bring your attention to the Doc NYC Festival coming up November 11th to 19th. Thanks to the pandemic, the festival is moving online this year, so you can buy tickets to screenings from anywhere in the United States. We'll also hold free conversations accessible anywhere in the world. For more information, go to docnyc.net. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Anehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. Thank you.